Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 29 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. We are back today once again to discuss the latest headlines, the news, and our take. Today is August 1st. 10:39 in the morning. Markets are open. Relatively flat today. We've got a couple of fun things that we thought we would talk about today. And the first on the agenda is is financial media leading to lifestyle inflation? We think so, but we thought we would unpack that a little bit. Number 2 is the Magnificent 7. If you haven't tuned into our Q2 commentary, uh, rather our Q3 commentary, we're talking about the outlook in the third quarter and the review of the second quarter. That just dropped last episode, so you would have gotten that in your inbox late last week, both in newsletter form and podcast form and YouTube form. Please do tune in. We think it'll be really informative to what happened last quarter and what we think could happen this upcoming quarter. But this is such a relevant topic, we wanted to spend a few moments here on our regular podcast as well. Number three, the Fed hiked. No one cared. We thought we'd unpack that one as well. We've been talking about the Fed for months. They hiked. Nothing happened. Wah, wah. (laughs) Number four, up like a rocket, down like a feather. We're actually referring to the prices of burritos at Chipotle and McDonald's and groceries and uh, uh, all of these things that we're all getting stung on when we go out to eat. Alrighty. How it's wonderful to see you as Likewise. always today. Yep. Let's dive in. Financial media leading to lifestyle inflation. You posted an article here about the Powerball jackpot winner, and it wasn't about the winner, potential winner. It was just all about the taxes that they'd have to pay. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about lifestyle inflation with media. What's your take here? Yeah, the the article, this is CNBC saying the $1 billion jackpot, Powerball jackpot is up for grabs. Here's what the winner could owe in taxes. So already there's like this negative clickbaity connotation to it, right? Like you're suddenly rich, but you're you're suddenly a very large taxpayer. And I wanted to really dig into one not just lottery winners, right? Anyone who's won, or not won, but it came into sudden wealth. Think about sports players or athletes, professional athletes who go broke. I, I know the amount that go bankrupt is disturbingly high after mm-hmm. their playing careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that doesn't really change when you're a professional athlete or a lottery winner or someone who inherited or got uh, stock awards, at least initially, right? That's something that we could talk about too. But any sudden wealth benefit or wealth award that people have gotten, there's there's this mindset, I think, that you could elaborate on, Chris, that makes it difficult for people to really adjust to that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. 
The stats here are about 70% of all lottery winners end up going bankrupt in three to five years. That's 7-0, right? 7-0, seven, seven, zero, thank you, yeah. Most, 70, 7-0. Seven, uh, it's a common occurrence in sports. We've all read the articles about how NFL players often will uh, will go bankrupt. They have sometimes very short careers where they can make a lot of money in a couple of years of play, and then they get knocked out of their career. And uh, that amount of money isn't often enough to sustain a very expensive lifestyle if they were spending well into their salary and wrapping up, racking up debt and these sorts of things. We actually posted an article about this and uh, we'll repost this on, on LinkedIn and social. This was posted back in February of 2022. Uh, and we talked about one of the most common things that we run into is the windfall that we see with our clients due to their company, either IPO or a business sale transaction. Um, or even just a job change that resulted in a very, very large stock grant that then that stock went up a lot. And I think the most challenging thing that we see is our clients sort of fitting into their new financial shoes. Um, I would say that the vast majority of them do a very, very nice job of not inflating their lifestyle. That's maybe because they work with us, you know, maybe they're, they're a little bit more budget conscious. Maybe they're taking that step of hiring an advisor to, to coach them on, on their finances. Um, but you know, we, we do also see sometimes the, the next house gets purchased, the next cars, these and that, this, that, and the other, and spending starts to, to grow significantly. Um, so we, we see that sometimes as well. So I, I think the main thing is, um, how much money is it? And if it's a lot and a lot is relative, so I'm not going to say a number because a lot's different for everybody. The main thing is just don't do anything right away. And for framing this, let's think of a lot as in many multiples of whatever your annual salary is. You know, it's 10 times, it's 20 times, it's 50 times that annual salary. So it's a, it's a, it's a life-changing amount of money. What we tell people to do is just don't do anything, ideally for a year, at least six months, but ideally for a year. And when you mean by that is don't, buy that big house, the new car, or yep. don't, don't increase your spending above and beyond what you're already spending. Don't buy a new car. Don't lease a new car. Don't buy a new house. Don't pay off your existing house. Just don't change anything financially in a major way. Does that mean that you can't go take a vacation? Of course not. Go take a vacation. In fact, go fly first class. That's great. But it's just major, major financial changes, uh, can can make a, a, a huge change to the trajectory of your financial plan if made too soon, um, especially if that type of thing goes against you. It, what if you bought a house last year and now that house is worth less and you realize you don't like that house, you don't like living there, and now you're stuck there for many years? It, you know, could be could be uh, detrimental to your overall plan. In a year, do you think that just to allow time, allow time for adjustment to get in the mindset of being suddenly rich or wealthy? Yeah, yeah. Really what it is, is get used to feeling having that amount of money in the bank. Get used to looking at it when you log in. Uh, hopefully it's invested, of course, uh, and not just sitting in, in cash. I know that cash is more attractive today than it was 18 months ago. We've talked about this on our episodes as well, how uh, you know we don't want to be swayed by earning 5% in a high-yield savings account because we think that the market could only give us 6 or 7 um, you know, we have to think long term, but really it's 
just getting into your new financial shoes or fitting into your new financial shoes. Um, because if you have too much money in the bank, you might just start spending more and more. And then that spending might actually be an outsized amount of money relative to your overall net worth. You mentioned getting invested too. This is a little bit off topic, but some someone who's used to seeing certain dollar movements in their account when it was much smaller, have you seen people get a lot more nervous, even though the percentage is the same, like a $10,000 investment versus a $2 million investment, you know, a 2% swing in either one of those is a very big dollar amount difference. I think that's a really great point that you bring up. And, and, you know, transparently, I think it's a miss for all of us as financial advisors and, and, and investment professionals. We think in terms of percentages. Yeah. Our, our brains work in terms of percentages, 2%, 5%, 10%, that kind of thing. Now, that makes it transferable. Like if I'm talking to someone who makes $100 million versus someone who has sure. 100000 right? That, <laughs> that's how I think of it. But yeah, And that's totally a good point. point. Yeah. It makes it totally scalable, right? Yeah. But what we commonly find is that our clients, who are normal people, they think in terms of dollars. And so if we see their portfolio moving by a million dollars, for example, just because of regular market yeah. movement, that's a lot more stressful to them than it possibly is to us if maybe that's a 10% move or a 5% move yeah. or even a 20% move because markets do that. And so I think thinking about it, you know, watching, watching the amount of money go up and down and trying to compartmentalize, okay, I've won or lost this amount of money over this period of time. We know long-term it does go up like it has in the past when I had X dollars, which was a, a multiple less. We really want to try to think about it as, I mean, lack for, for lack of a better term, kind of think about it as a business. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good point. All right, and I think uh, the next one, same same source, CNBC, uh, recently posted that people earning hundred thousand or more, forty five percent of them are living paycheck to paycheck, and I kind of want to unpack that term, what living paycheck to paycheck means, and that could be different for everyone, and I think that a lot of it has to do with um, the suddenness of the the salaries or like salary increases, which especially the last two years, right? A lot of people have gotten big jumps in salary or wage increases. Mm -hmm. And one, they're, they're not adjusting quite as well. Or two, they're not keeping up with inflation or three, both mm. or four, because there's 340 million people in the country. They're going to have different situations. But I think when people are making that much money, even when inflation is around four or five percent, are they spending too much? Are they not budgeting properly? Or yes, all of the above. Or or are things gotten so expensive and out of hand that no matter what your raise is, I'm being facetious there. No matter how much you're making, inflation's um, eating every single penny out of your bank account. Can I flip that? Yeah. So you said of those earning 100000 or more, only 45% reported living paycheck to paycheck. What does that mean for the 55%? Yeah. They're feeling pretty good, right? Yeah. So I think, I think that could mean that 55%, you know, call it half, half of people that are earning 100000 or more are feeling 
good about their financial situation. Half are not, you know, yes, that's maybe not great. We always want that number to be better. Sure. But I, I suppose when I'm reading things like, you know, 70%, 80%, 90% of Americans can cover a or can't cover a thousand dollar and I, I don't know the number, so don't don't. I'm I'm totally misquoting myself, but it's a high percentage of Americans <laughs> yeah. that cannot cover a thousand dollar bill if it showed up. To me, this actually looks like fun with numbers. Fifty five percent report feeling pretty good. Where do I have that wrong? Well, because you your version of the story wouldn't generate any clicks. I think that's <laughs> one you wouldn't sell any newspapers, and I, I think if you look at your subscriber numbers, we're not interested in numbers. In terms of viewer numbers, either though, so well, we I don't have that pushing us, right? So, something that we talked about in a past episode is that consumer confidence is finally really good. Now, if you tune in a couple episodes ago, it was at a, a low, like lower yeah. than yeah. lower than pandemic, lower than financial crisis, which is we think partially driven by by headlines, but um, but now that's jumped, right? So you know, Americans have suddenly felt really good about markets in the last couple of couple of months, really. Um, so I wonder if it's just kind of a feeling, right? I wonder if this data, when polled, when people aren't feeling good, um, you know, they're more stressed, they're more living paycheck to paycheck versus now, I wonder if that data is actually driving or, or falling, um, meaning people are feeling better about their financial situation, yeah. which is, I think, what the recent data has said. About their personal, I think that shines a light on how they kind of view the outside world, hmm. where they're more optimistic about their own finances, I think. Um, a good example was that story that New York Times did on a guy from Sacramento. He got a nice race. He took his family out to Disneyland twice in a year, mm -hmm. which I think going to the most expensive place on in America probably for our family. I'll never go. Doing it twice. It's. I don't think that's lifestyle creep. That's like a lifestyle jump. Because prior, how big was this race? First of all. Yeah. Did it talk about that? No, it didn't. Yeah, because maybe it. it was maybe it was totally justified, right? Yeah. But if you got a a a I don't know ten thousand dollar raise and you spent thirty thousand dollars more, well, that didn't that didn't pan out. Correct. And the justification there is like, well, I'm you know getting a loan for a car, so my monthly payments are more than justified by my raise, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a really myopic view of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of myopic views, the Magnificent Seven have pulled the entire market <laughs> forward this year. Massive so views. we have seven companies that have driven the returns and 493 that haven't. Now that is starting to change. Uh, those 493 companies are starting to participate in this rally, which is which is great. And that's that's really why the markets have continued to propel forward um, uh, in the last number of months. The Magnificent Seven pulled the market up about seven, eight, nine percent when everything else didn't do anything. But now with these other companies starting to participate, the market's up. Uh, the, by the market, I mean I'm saying the S&P 500 is up roughly 20 now this year. Um, let's unpack this. Magnificent Seven lead the way. What are your thoughts? Yeah, a couple of things. They they lead the way because not because they're the best performers. They're actually far from it. The Magnificent Seven are pushing the market because this is how the make makeup of the market is, right? We mm -hmm. talked about market cap weighting versus equal weighting. Um, market cap weighting just gives the biggest credence to the biggest companies. And Apple is the biggest company by far, right? $3 trillion for the S&P. That's going to 
cover about 7% of the S&P, even though it's 500 companies, you're buying majority Apple, even though Apple's not the biggest standalone size, right? But right. Apple sneezes, the market gets a cold, right? Amazon sneezes, the market gets a cold. Right. And if you're 100% in the S&P, you're about 30% in big blue chip tech, and we know how fleeting that is over time, right? Uh, how long has NVIDIA been in business? Do they, do we think they're going to be in business for the next 50 years? Maybe. I hope so. Mm-hmm. But you never know, right? You look at the, the top companies in the last 20 years, right? You, the names like GE, Chevron, and Exxon, right? They're, they're fading pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Apple, fun statistic, Apple is worth more by market capitalization than the entire Russell 2000. Now the Russell 2000 is the 2000 smallest companies in the US. One company is worth more (laughs) than 2000 companies. Uh, There's a chart here that's sort of interesting. It says in 2019, um, Apple's worth uh, about half roughly of all of these companies. Then it met that. Uh, So COVID COVID fell. Um, A lot of these small companies fell more than Apple did at that time. Apple rallied back stronger. And that was the first time really at the peak of the COVID highs towards the end of 2020. Uh, that was the first time that Apple, Apple's market cap touched more than the Russell 2000. Then it kind of went slow and now it's back there. Uh, went slowly, slowly kind of lost ground and now it's back there. So just interesting that we have one company that's worth more than 2000 companies combined. Yeah. And I think that one company catches a cold, right? That that's going to be pretty difficult for an index to overcome. Mm-hmm. But we mentioned uh, some of the indexes have already rebalanced, uh, specifically the NASDAQ. But again, the S&P's 30%, those seven companies, the NASDAQ mm-hmm. was much, much higher concentration of those big companies. Yeah, it was over 50%, and they were trying to get it to under 50%. So there's a big reshuffle in, in the NASDAQ recently, uh, about two weeks ago, I believe, on Monday. So... You talked a little bit about how the price or the valuations, uh, commonly referred to as a, a PE ratio, the PE ratio, which stands for price to earnings, the ratio of the big seven is a lot more than the rest of the companies in the S&P. And I thought you had a really good description of what that means in terms of what investors are willing to pay for a dollar profits for these companies. Could you unpack that for our listeners? Yeah, so just providing more of like the fundamental background. If you bought a stock, you're buying ownership rights to that stock's profits, more specifically that company's profits, right? Even if it's a fraction of a percent, right? And a company like Apple makes $100 billion, you you are entitled to that fraction of ownership, right? Mm-hmm. And if a company is more or less profitable, you want to reward that because you are getting more profit back right in the form of dividends stock buybacks or you know price appreciation so if you were an owner of apple you've been pretty happy with the last 15 years and that's because apple's profits have grown at a at a steady clip and that's what's true stock ownership is right so what you're paying for is future expectations of those profit growth so meaning if Apple's earning $100 billion, I'm not getting one for one for what I'm paying for the stock price to profits. 
because if that was the case, every stock would be a dollar. Mm-hmm. But I'm paying what's called the price to earnings multiple, and we call that the premium. So in Apple's case, it's uh, I believe it's twenty no thirty something times earnings, which uh, in the early 2010s Apple was trading at twelve times earnings. Yeah, and it's thirty three times earnings now. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm paying thirty three times a premium for every dollar in return and profit in expected profit. Mm-hmm. So some of these valuations are very well justified. Uh, growth companies, big chip companies. Um, we started the year saying clients should buy big tech growth simply because they cut in half, right? Mm-hmm. So the Magnificent mm-hmm. Seven were, they were down 47, 48% last year mm-hmm. relative to the S&P, which was down 20%, right? So this after this rally, though, the the combined price to earnings ratio for the Magnificent Seven, it's more than double the S&P. The S&P is trading around 15 times earnings, which historically it's right on average. The Magnificent Seven is trading around 31 times earnings. Wow. Yeah. So have you, how you have to look at that is the Magnificent Seven needs to grow their profits above and beyond what they're growing now at twice the speed of the rest of the S and P, is that sustainable? And well, I think that's, that's what, what the, we're asking. Yeah, and I think your point is that's what the market is expecting and pricing in to yes. those stocks. So People, what we've sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just what we've seen when these companies release earnings, even if earnings is really good, the stock yeah, we saw that down. with Microsoft. They had really good earnings, but mm-hmm. they weren't good enough apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they actually came down because of it. Yep. So that would be our expectation is that if earnings continues at this, you know, white hot rate, yeah, these companies possibly can justify these premiums for an extended period of time. But if some element of the earnings, whether it's cloud growth or a new product that launched that's going slower or costing more, you could see an outsized amount of volatility in any one or all of these stocks if they're more affected by some sort of a macroeconomic condition uh, or something with their own individual business. And those pullbacks with disappointing earnings, that's pretty healthy. It's just because expectations from the investing public had gotten so high. So sure. if we're expecting 100 out of Apple and we get a 50, yes, you're going to get a pretty sharp sell-off, but you have a chance to reset there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's healthy. Well, I don't think that's healthy to have a... Hundred percent combined run up, right? The the Magnificent Seven they're up ninety seven percent as of July. And that year to date, that, yeah, that's year wow. to date. And uh, look at them in twenty twenty two. You could argue that they're just returning back to their twenty two levels, but still, uh, we're just finished July, and we're getting a hundred percent run up in seven months. That's a very sharp rally like very sharp it is worth noting that the current price to earnings ratio of both the big seven and the rest of the s p is actually still below the covid highs yeah so everybody may remember it was like february or so of 2020 and the market started to fall and it felt like 30 percent or more depending on your stock or your sector uh, in about two weeks and then started to recover and then it hit all-time highs 
at the end of the year. And I, I know, you know, at least for myself, I look at my statement at the end of 2020 and wonder, how did I make this much money this year? Uh, when everything, you know, I look out my window and the world's locked down and, you know, all this stuff. So it, it was a very strange year in markets. But it's worth noting that the S&P, so the rest of the S&P, if you take out the big seven, it was over just over 20 times earnings at that time. So if the average is about 15, it was at about 20. And the big seven were valued at just over 40 times earnings at that time. So now with those numbers adjusting down to about 31 on the big seven, down from roughly 41 or so, and then the S&P uh, right around, I think you said 16, 17 right now? Yep. In terms of their valuation, so slightly you know, right around the average. So it is worth noting that that means that the prices today are more justified than they were at the end of 2020. Uh, now there's two factors to the equation and the other one is earnings. So it basically means that companies are earning more to kind of grow into their prices. That's good news. That's, that's, that's largely good news. Uh, but still, we want to point out that there is a pretty large discrepancy here. This discrepancy between big tech and everybody else has not been wider since 1999 and 2000. Yeah, and I think that everybody else, we're seeing the catch-up since the end of May. Um, I don't know if it will continue or not. Who knows? But I think that's what we've been saying where the Magnificent Seven kind of plateau a little bit and everyone else has a chance to catch up. At least that, that's what my hope is. I'd love to hear your predictions in a few future episode what the next thing is going to be. You know, it was it was Fang and then, you know, it's there's something in between too, right? And then and then now it's Magnificent 7, right? There's always kind of a new acronym yeah. or yeah, we, something. If you look at all those seven companies, they there's a common thread where except for Apple at this point is AI. And sure. if it is a bubble, we'll probably call it the AI bubble. I hope it's not um, but a lot of the seven have exposure indirectly, or at least on the earnings calls where they've mentioned AI a mind-numbingly amount of times. The AI seven, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we'll we'll be curious on what the next thing is going to be. The next, I know that the Magnificent Seven isn't an acronym, but the next acronym—that's what we'll call it. Yeah, the next label for whatever's doing. Label. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's move to the Fed. The Fed raised rates by a quarter of a percent last week. And nothing happened, even when Jay Powell continued to talk, which historically they deliver their rate increase. Nothing happens in the markets. And then he starts talk, continues to talk. And during his interview, he says something that the market doesn't like and the market hates. <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> Every single time it happens. So like what happened? Well, they raised rates a quarter of a percent as everyone expected. It was a 98% odds on favorite Okay. heading into the rate hike. So... Again, the, the I think we've been consistent with this part where people aren't, or investors aren't, or more specifically, the market isn't waiting for an official announcement for anything or a green light for anything, right? If they get a signal that the rates are going to hike in July, they're going to price it in in June or in May. And I think what came in last week was a ho-hum, like, yeah, we kind of expected that. It's, everything's already been priced in, so what else is there to price in? So at that point, they look at what the Fed says. So what Chris was mentioning is J-PAL has a, a way with words to swing the market, mostly, mostly down lately. But he's trying to be careful. I totally get it. But we haven't had a Fed tran this transparent 
right? Since um, since before 2008, the Fed would just come out and raise rates and not tell mm. anyone what they're doing for the next hike or not. Mm. This is kind of a new new thing for the markets to digest because of the housing crisis. That that press conference after the the rate delivery is yeah. New. Huh. Yeah, the the actual talking to the public, uh, the release the release of the Fed minutes is still on the same timeline, but that's just kind of the transparency of it all. Hmm. So all the people in the room say, "We're going to vote for a hike, and we're going to pre-vote for the next hike." So right now, hmm. twelve out of eighteen say they want at least one more hike in the year. That hmm. those minutes that are in closed doors have always been published after the fact. Uh, weeks after the fact, but yeah, the 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 press conference or the media tour that was actually something pretty new created by Ben Bernanke, mm. and I think at that point it made sense because we were going through a housing crisis, and I mm-hmm. think the transparency from the Fed was valuable. Mm-hmm. Now, people are just debating whether we should have a media fest or not. So did, so, okay, unpacking a couple things there. Fed delivers a rate hike, nothing happens. That means that the market already priced it in. We talked about this a ton on previous episodes. The market is already anticipating a lot of things. That's why we see big swings on earnings calls. That's why we see big swings on whether it's jobs reports or inflation data or these kinds of things. Because if the market's anticipation of what that release was going to be is off, the market moves to try to correct it. So nothing happened with interest rates. But is that even true at the short end of the yield curve, meaning the the one to three, one to six month range? Did did those interest rates not even move? Yeah, money markets did not move that full quarter of a percent. Uh, they moved up like very slightly, but pretty imperceptible. Like there is movement, but it wasn't like movement that was outside of the normal market. I guess money days. markets could take as much as thirty days to adjust because they buy thirty day or less. Yeah. debt instruments, right? So they, in theory, would have to mature those and reinvest fully. Is that maybe an accurate statement? That's very accurate. And I think they've already bought and, or bought, bought, <laughs> bought and, uh, already bought paper that has already been priced in, mm-hmm. right? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anything above two days, two days old is market driven. And I think that's what we've been trying to consistently put out there is like the market really determines those rates got it okay so the fed pointed to how they are looking for continued reduction in price pressures fancy way of saying they still want inflation to come down they're still still hounding on this two percent target um which i i think is a long way we're a long way from two percent but uh, they're, they're hounding on this 2% target and they're, they're pointing to a couple things and, you know, let, let's move to our last topic here. Cause you pointed towards, um, companies like Chipotle and McDonald's that are raising prices to combat their wage inflation that they're paying. And they're being somewhat, I guess I'll say subsidized now, but the cost of their goods have come down because inflation has come down. So all this is related, right? What is your take on what McDonald's is doing and what their earnings report says and Chipotle is doing and grocery stores? What are those companies saying and how does that relate to the Fed? Yeah, the McDonald's and Chipotle specifically are not suffering by any means. Their profits have actually grown. Their margins have grown. 
uh, well past the rate of inflation at its peak. So uh, if the price of meat was up 20%, they rose their prices up 30%, right? They've always, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They've always been ahead of cost increases, and they've been more than passing it along to the customers, right? Chipotle, I know <laughs> that's come up, the, the $14 burrito. I don't know what it is anymore. I don't really eat there. But that $14 burrito, right, let's assume pre-pandemic was $9, so that $5 price hike more than covered the wage increases, the mm-hmm. price of beef and rice and whatever else goes in those burritos. Those have all started coming down. Wage increases have still kind of ticked up, but they aren't, right? They aren't going down, so to speak. So I think that's what Chris was mentioning about the sticky part of inflation. I think that would be more persistent, harder-to-reach type of goal for the Fed. Mm-hmm. And um, the, our headline says, up like a rocket, down like a feather. We, I, I think of gas prices here. Um, analysts are saying uh, Chipotle and McDonald's have seen price decreases in their input costs, right? The, the cost of chicken and pork are now easing. Um, they, they're starting to miss quarterly earnings because they don't have that the built-in excuse to raise prices continually. So if they're staying flat with the prices, they're, they're not going to tick them down, right, down like a feather. But mm. as the cost of beef and chicken go down, their margins are suddenly growing again, right? So I think that's one of the biggest, I guess, tricks or, or sleight of hand things that uh, some of the corporations have been able to successfully pass along. So it says here that Chipotle missed quarterly sales, but did they beat on margins? Meaning? Yes. Okay, interesting. So they had better margins, but... People are spending less there. People are spending less. And I wonder if that's an indicator of people are starting to run out of money, finally. Yeah, they're tapping out, right? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But there's still significant amount are still spending. Yeah. And I think... uh, that side of inflation is going to be a lot more sticky than what we anticipate. And if it's for wages, I think I I think that's good for an economy, but if it's for $14 burritos or whatever Chipotle yeah. <laughs> charges, I think that that does hurt and adds to inflation. Well, and less sales is what would spur, meaning less products getting sold is what would spur a sale or price reduction. I've started to see this a ton at the grocery yeah. store. I don't know if it's just the time of year and say a lot of produce is getting harvested and needs to get sold. Um, one of the things that pains me so much, uh, we've talked about cauliflower in the past. <laughs> cauliflower has been on sale. For everyone listening, is, I got a picture of cauliflower randomly a week ago or so, right? Yeah, it was on double sale. And <laughs> double like, sale. Look at this. It's finally, it's finally coming down. The other thing that pains me is asparagus. Asparagus is like six bucks a pound, five ninety nine. It's ridiculous. Well, it was on sale last week when I was at the store for I don't know, you know, something less than that. So I bought two. But the point is, um, those sales. Hopefully, I hope it's not seasonal. I hope it's not just oh, we have more product coming off the farms. It's about to go bad, so therefore discount to get it sold. Sure. I hope that it is more related to actual prices coming down. Um, I think it's interesting that. Chipotle missed sales estimates. I wonder if we'll see this continue to, to, you know, continue as a trend. I know we've seen some sales work, 
Tesla's a great example of that. Tesla's dropped sure. the price of their cars a number of times, and they keep they keep beating their earnings uh, in terms of at least top line. Their margins are getting squeezed, but their top line keeps keeps impressing. So this will be an interesting story to play out, I think, in the next couple of months, really probably between now and the end of the year. Yeah, and it's, I think it's something to closely watch because who's perpetuating continual inflation, right? Who's making it sticky? Because mm-hmm. it feels like everyone is suffering other than the S&P components. You also said that McDonald's CEO commented that some consumers were opting for cheaper items on the menu and or cutting down on order sizes. So they said foot traffic remains strong, but it seems like the average ticket price out the door came down. That's Correct. an interesting point as well. So top line revenue is what just if I sell a Big Mac for $7, right, that's not $7 in profit. It's probably yeah 3 or $4 in profits after wages and everything. So if people are, that's something to watch out for as a leading where, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where uh, people are, you know, in an absolute sense, just spending less. And I think that's healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of lets us reset supply and demand because demand had always been, not always, but the last two years, right, um, had always been some, in some kind of imbalance relative to supply. I mean, this is what we've been waiting for, right? We've been, we've been. I don't want to say predicting, uh, because because we've been totally wrong, but we've thought that consumer spending would slow down much, much longer. Yeah, we thought many so many yeah. months ago. People just aren't running out of money. Well, maybe it's starting to show now. Whereas, you know, you go to McDonald's and you know you you skip the I don't know you skip the shake or something, right? Because you save the two bucks, and maybe that's happening. Same thing with Chipotle. You're, you're skipping guac, you know, it's extra. You're <laughs> it's, skipping it. Guac is extra, I know. Guac is extra. By the way, did you see in their earnings report, they commented on, uh, this is Chipotle, they commented on a new guac-making machine. Oh, no. That is... Run by AI? I, no, no, no. AI is too buzzy. It's just a machine <laughs> that, that you know, peels the avocados, pits them, and then turns it into guacamole. And I'd have to pull up this article. I'll, I'll pull it up and I'll send it to you. But it makes guacamole like, I don't know, 10 or 50 times faster than what their humans can. Uh, and so they, they're working on deploying this now in all of their stores so that they can, A, cut down on the labor cost, but also speed up the time at which that they can produce it, which to me probably means it's even more fresh at that point. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, I'm still seeing signs for $15 an hour, $16 an hour, which is a great starting wage for a food service, entry-level job. Interesting. I'm I'm seeing over twenty in my area. Yeah, here. twenty, twenty-two. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think not wages because I've I know for sure McDonald's could cover a twenty dollar an hour wage even in the mo- most poor areas. I think it's just the lack of being able to attract talent. Sure. At that point, yeah, is driving some of these automated automations. Yeah, which There's I think would of- accelerate good feasible jobs in that in that space i mean i think the gig economy has added to that yeah and it's like do i want to work at at mcdonald's and 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 you know deal with with end consumers or do i want to drive an uber i can let's just assume that that i can make the same amount of money doing those two things i'd rather drive an uber that sounds or you know uber eats deliver food whatever that sounds like a way more enjoyable job i don't have to deal with people you know yeah i guess yeah we went to a restaurant and while we're waiting for our food, probably 12 or so Uber Eats or DoorDash yeah. um, orders went out the door. So yeah. I think for a restaurant, that's a lot because we still sat there, right? So we were one order, 
versus 12 orders during the time we were there as a restaurant, which one would you rather have too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the, the, the shift is continually going to be going towards. All right, let's wrap for today. <clears throat> Thanks everyone for tuning in. I uh, hope this episode was helpful. We'll catch you again in two weeks. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everyone.